Hello, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. John Campbell. This week, I'm pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Greg Penner. Greg is a professor in the Department of Animal and Poultry Science here at the University of Saskatchewan. He is the University's Centennial Enhancement Chair in Ruminant Nutritional Physiology. He's a prolific researcher on beef and dairy cattle nutrition with a wealth of knowledge to share with us. Today, our topic's all about dealing with high sulfates in water and cattle diets. So let's get started. Welcome back to the podcast, Greg. Thanks for being here again. Thanks for having me, John. Your last episode on identifying the efficient beef cow with me has had the highest record of downloads of all our episodes. So you're the reigning record holder. Thank you for that, for this little podcast. But maybe not everybody's listened to that. So we'll recommend that they go back. But could you start maybe by telling the audience a little bit about your background? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm... Fortunate, I I work in the same place essentially that I grew up. I grew up in, just north of Saskatoon, uh, well in Saskatoon and north of Saskatoon. Grew up on a dairy farm, uh, but had a lot of experience with beef cattle and and sheep as well during my younger years. I did my my educational training here at the University of Saskatchewan, both for my bachelor's and master's. Took off to the U of A for my PhD, and then was very fortunate that I got hired into a ruminant nutrition and physiology position here at the university. Right. And you're doing lots of different research projects on different aspects of ruminant nutrition and physiology, both on the dairy and beef side, but a lot on the beef side. And we want to talk today about an important issue, at least here in many parts of Western Canada, which is high sulfates or sulfate toxicity. And those sulfates can be present in water sources and also in feeds. So let's start by talking about where or when we see those particularly high levels of sulfates. Yeah, so from a feed perspective, um, typically where we see high concentrations of sulfur would be in some of our byproducts. So historically, distiller's grains was one of the ones that caused some uh, alarm or some awareness. And we saw you know, sulfur concentrations in distillers anywhere from 0.3 to over 1%. So very large range and, and very high concentrations at certain times. Another area where we tend to see higher sulfur in feeds is actually in brassicas. So canola meal as an example, and, and probably more relevant uh, to local grazing practices is through the use of these polycrops, where they have a high brassica component, sometimes we start seeing elevated sulfur uh, in those forage mixtures. In terms of water, um, unfortunately, we can't say it's groundwater or surface water. It happens in both. Um, it does seem to be a bit regional. So we have some pockets in Saskatchewan and Alberta, particularly, that end up having very high uh, sulfate concentrations. And that even extends down into the northern part of the U.S. Great Plains. And so it's a pretty broad issue. And and typically there's fairly large areas that are affected. What happens then when we do have high levels of sulfates in the water or the diet? How high does it have to be? And, and what do we see? Yeah, so the first thing we need to recognize is sulfur is actually a requirement in the diet and sulfur is needed for the microbes in the rumen uh, to do their job efficiently. So they'll use that sulfur when they're uh, synthesizing amino acids or protein for growth. 
the problem comes in when we have too much and and we can talk about those levels pretty soon uh, but the microbes then recognize that there's too much and they convert that sulfur or sulfate into sulfides and it's the sulfides that are really the problem so you're probably uh, familiar with a gas called hydrogen sulfide that sour smelling gas and that can lead to uh, potential issues with polio or we can have sulfides binding to other trace minerals particularly copper molybdenum and iron and then it ties up those mi minerals making them uh, unavailable and that can happen both in the digestive tract but also uh, within the blood system now the other thing I think we need to mention or, or at least acknowledge is diet has a really big influence on the level that becomes problematic for sulfur. And so if we have cattle on high grain diets, they're more sensitive to higher levels of sulfur. When we have cattle on high forage diets, they're more tolerant. Interesting. So let's talk about polio briefly. So it's not always the only result of high sulfates, but if we have really high levels, we do see this nervous disease called polio. What does that look like and why are they getting this brain disease? Yeah, so the first the first issue is, um, you know, when there's a lot of hydrogen sulfide in the rumen, just like with other gases that are produced in the rumen, the cows try to eructate and exhale that gas. As part of that process, when they're removing it from the rumen, they inhale the gas into the lungs and hydrogen sulfide can actually cross the lungs and enter uh, circulation. And hydrogen sulfide does a number of things, but it interferes with energy metabolism in the brain. And that's why we start seeing this neurological disorder with head pressing and stargazing and a lack of coordination, ultimately death if if it's severe enough or happens pretty acutely, actually. So we have, um, you know, a situation where high levels of hydrogen sulfide crosses into the bloodstream, impairs energy metabolism in the brain, and influences uh, the ability of the cattle to control their nervous system. Yes. So many times, like you said, it's it's really sudden death. They they die quite quickly. And if we're not out there seeing them, but we may see some of these cows go down or be stumbling and have some of these unusual nervous signs like stargazing, looking up and over their back and maybe even having some sort of seizure activity. But that's sort of overt clinical disease. We don't always see that. So what can these sulfates be doing subclinically? Yeah, and I think this has been actually the bigger issue in Saskatchewan or Western Canada. Uh, and one of the very well-known effects of high sulfates is its interaction with copper and its ability to deplete copper stores. So because it ties up copper coming from the diet in the gastrointestinal tract, as well as circulation, it causes the liver to release more copper to try to meet those copper demands. And over time, uh, copper is depleted. And this this really isn't new. Uh, you've been involved in some of the work, John, where Cheryl Waldner has done, you know, herd level surveys and found that I think it's around 40 to 43 percent of the cows at least surveyed in those studies uh, had some type of subclinical or some severity of subclinical copper deficiency. 
Exactly. It's probably the number one trace mineral deficiency we see across all of Canada. Some of our latest stuff would show it's everywhere, but certainly in Western Canada for sure. Yeah, that really points to some other problems, right? Uh, so we're we're shifting a little bit from talking about effects of high sulfate and then shifting into, you know, the essential roles that copper plays. And copper is everywhere in the body, right? If we look at enzymes that are required for most metabolic processes, energy metabolism, antioxidant systems, bone and hair pigmentation. So we commonly see, you know, those dark-hided cattle have a little bit of a red pigment um, show up. So broad effects across all ages of livestock and we really need to ensure that we aren't creating a system where we're propagating uh, subclinical or clinical copper deficiencies. Yes, and it can have a huge impact on fertility and immunity to various diseases, response to vaccines, the list goes on and on. So it is a very important trace mineral and anything that affects it, uh, where we may already have slight issues in some parts of the world in terms of just levels of copper alone, now we have this secondary effect of, of binding it up with, with sulfates. What are the current guidelines for levels of sulfates that could potentially cause problems in cattle? Yeah, this is uh, an area that I think we can help advance. And, and there's a number of different guidelines. So if we look at what used to be the, uh, the NRC, the National Research Council, they've changed their name to NASM. But their guidelines focus on avoidance of polio, and they don't really talk about levels that are associated with uh, alterations of trace mineral status. So they say if you want to avoid polio for cattle-fed high-forage diets, they can tolerate up to 2,500 ppm and 0.5% of their diet as sulfur. So that, that's very prescriptive. And I think probably the most important part of that is they are recognizing that sulfur can come from both feed and water. All of the other guidelines that we find only talk about water. And you can see that the levels that, that I'll uh, share here are, are quite a bit lower. So if you look at BCRC or the provincial government, there's a little bit of variation. But the Saskatchewan government says uh, up to 1,000 ppm is, is safe, and BCRC is somewhere around 800 parts per million being safe. Once you're beyond those levels, kind of that 800 or 1,000 to 2,000, it's really used with caution, knowing that you might have uh, some of these effects we've been talking about, uh, maybe more difficulty in terms of maintaining trace mineral status, maybe even um, greater risk for other clinical disorders like like polio. And then when we get beyond 2000, the recommendation is really to try to avoid that water source or to uh, improve that water source through diluting it with higher quality water or potentially water treatment or filtration systems. You've done several studies here at the university at our Livestock and Forage Center that have looked at sulfates. And one of the first studies that you did uh, with graduate student Jordan Johnson, and you were collaborating with some of our folks in Saskatchewan agriculture at the time, Leah Clark and Colby Alford, you folks actually showed that cattle could tolerate pretty high levels of sulfates in the water. So describe what you found there. Yeah, so that was really our first uh, 
foray into this area, and, and it was really driven by the ministry because of the issues we had with uh, some cattle um, dying in association with very high water sulfate. So in that study, we went up to 3,300 parts per million of sulfate. Now, it's really important to mention that in that study, we added sulfate to the water. So it was really a pure sulfate water. It didn't have all these other contaminants that often occur with uh, poor quality water that has a high TDS. So sulfate is often a primary contaminant, but it will not be the only contaminant in most natural systems. So that's important to recognize. But essentially, as we increased uh, sulfate concentration up to 3,300 parts per million, we saw very limited effects on dry matter intake, very limited effects on water intake. And, and the reason I say limited is sometimes it was increased, sometimes it was decreased, and it depended on a week of the study. And we fed those cattle that high water sulfate for 84 days. So a, a reasonably uh, long period, at least from an experiment. We did show a reduction in serum copper, and, and we didn't have liver samples in that study, but at least the serum copper uh, provided an indication that at those uh, sulfate elevated sulfate levels, we probably were challenging trace mineral status uh, for those heifers. So you went pretty high on sulfate levels, and our guidelines are sort of saying, oh, 1 to 2,000, and you went up to... 3,300 parts per million and had no impact on the average daily gain body weight. Are our guidelines wrong or is there something else going on here, Greg? So there, I have a couple answers to this or a couple stages to the answer. First one is we need to think beyond growth and body weight. Um, and so, yeah, we didn't affect intake. We didn't affect both feed or water intake and we didn't affect growth. But that doesn't mean we don't have any effect. And I already mentioned that we had a reduction in serum copper. So we are influencing likely immune or not immune status, liver uh, trace mineral status, which might affect immune competence or antioxidant status or, you know, for those breeding cows, maybe reproductive uh, efficiency. We couldn't test that in this study. And, and so we're not going to extrapolate and say the guidelines are wrong. The other thing we need to recognize is this was 84 days. Uh, and that's different from cattle that might be exposed to this water for 365 days of a year, where that depleting effect is much stronger. Okay. The other way we can look at it is maybe the guidelines aren't wrong, but they might be a little conservative and they might miss some of the contributing factors. And so I already alluded to the old NRC recommendations where they acknowledge sulfur comes from water and feed. And in that study, we had appropriate feed sulfur. So we are around 0.17% uh, to dry matter. So a, a normal feed level with elevated uh, water. And, and I think that's really important to bring into context because what we're looking to do is separate water and uh, feed guidelines for sulfur, and we need to recognize that in some cases you have both high feed sulfur and high water sulfate. Correct. And probably in many cases where we may have high sulfates in surface water sources, that the forage around those surface water sources or in those same pastures would also be high in sulfates as well. 
Yeah, that that's a great comment. And that's something we've been pursuing with the Saskatchewan Ministry of Agriculture. We did a very small pilot study, and there does look to be an association between maybe not the water sulfur, but certainly the soil sulfur concentration and plant sulfur. And I think we know that from the cropping agriculture industry where you do get a positive response with sulfur fertilization as as a core essential element of plants. The the interesting part is we've rarely looked at the feed side, uh, at least that's my understanding when investigating disease outbreaks. So we often focus on the water and and maybe we've missed a part of the story where the feed could be contributing uh, some additional insults. There's no doubt the water is easier to test. And you mentioned this earlier that in many of these situations in these poor quality water sources, there's more than just sulfate wrong with the water. So that's the other thing that's different about your study is that we didn't have huge, huge TDS levels. You did have high sulfate levels, but you didn't have some of those other solutes in there. Right. Yeah. And our TDS was almost all expressed by by sodium sulfate. So it was really a, a pure source. Well, you did see an impact on copper levels in the blood, though, and that led you to your next project where you and Michaela Evans, your graduate student, were trying to mitigate high sulfites by adding bismuth subsalicylate as an additive. So let's start with bismuth subsalicylate. That's always a mouthful. What is that? So I'm going to abbreviate it as BSS because it's much easier to say. Um, But I think most people would best know um, bismuth subsalicylate or BSS. Uh, because of its active role as the functional ingredient in Pepto-Bismol. So there's a lot of work, and and this work is not new. If you look on the human side, that shows that when you provide low doses of BSS, it helps stabilize gut dysfunction, or at least, you know, traveler's diarrhea, partly by reducing hydrogen sulfide uh, production in in the gut. So that comes back to kind of that impact of sulfate coming from water. What our thought was, if we provide uh, BSS in the diet, maybe that BSS can bind the hydrogen sulfide, reduce the risk for it to bind to other trace minerals and reduce risk for polio. And there was some original or some previous work done with in vitro rumen fermentation systems and one in vivo feedlot study where they tried to use BSS with high sulfur diets. So let's let's describe that study a little bit of detail. What were the treatment groups that you had there? Yeah, so we wanted to both evaluate sulfate concentration in water. So we provided cattle water that was 350 or roughly 350 parts per million. That's the normal water at the Livestock Forge Center of Excellence. And then we spiked that water with sodium sulfate again to bring our uh, sulfate up to right around 5,000 parts per million. So really looking at those wide extremes, again, trying to push those high levels. And so cattle either had access to 350 parts per million or 5,000 parts per million sulfate. And then half of each of those either did or did not get bismuth subsalicylate. And it's included at a very low rate. It was only 0.4% of the dietary dry matter in this study. So what did you follow in those uh, cows? Well, you fed them that 
diets and that high sulfate, and that's quite high sulfate. That's well over the one to 2,000 range. Uh, what did you measure? Yeah, so our, our primary measurements, again, we wanted to make sure we knew what was going to happen for feed and water intake and growth. Um, working with Dr. Campbell here, we were able to take liver biopsies so that we could evaluate uh, trace mineral stores in the liver. And we also took blood samples so that we could evaluate uh, the serum concentration of minerals. And then throughout the study, we also did rumen taps and, and those rumen taps allowed us to collect gas from basically the top end of the rumen, the gas cap. And then we measured hydrogen sulfide concentration in that rumen gas. So did you see any clinical effects in the high sulfate water group? No, surprisingly, again, uh, you know, as you mentioned, we're feeding very high levels of sulfate. But again, our dietary sulfur was pretty low, only about 0.18 to 0.2. So low diet sulfur, high water sulfate. And we saw no evidence of any clinical effects uh, leading to polio. You did see some subclinical effects. What were, what were those? Yeah, so just as we would expect with high sulfate water, we saw um, a huge reduction in liver copper stores. Um, interestingly, in that study, we didn't see big effects on serum copper. And so essentially, we were starting to deplete that liver copper, but it wasn't at a point yet where we were able to detect it with serum copper. We also saw that that high sulfate treatment in water markedly increased um, hydrogen sulfide concentration in the rumen gas cap. So we saw everything we expected outside of no polio. Um, we saw elevated rumen hydrogen sulfide and we saw that uh, liver copper was being depleted uh, as the study went on. So the big question, did the BSS treatment work? That's a fun one because it kind of did, but I would say I would never use it from a commercial strategy to prevent um, or, or to mitigate effects from high sulfate water. So it was very effective at reducing ruminal H2S, and we had about a 46% reduction in the concentration of uh, ruminal H H2S or hydrogen sulfide. Okay, so it, it did as we expected reduce the, the impact of that gas. The problem is, and we've done some more digging now, and in fact, we're working on that paper right now. And what I've realized later, even though they don't mention it in the human literature, if you start digging in the alloy industry, BSS is being used as a replacement for some alloys that used to use lead. And the interesting part is bismuth can bind to many different metals, including copper, zinc, and selenium uh, manganese. And interestingly, we had an incredibly depleting effect on liver copper with BSS to the fact that it was about a, a tenfold reduction in liver copper relative to the high sulfate water. And we also saw reductions in zinc and we saw reductions in manganese and reductions in selenium. So this would be the perfect example of a situation where we're swallowing a spider to catch a fly and just making the situation worse, even though that's not 
propagated in the human medicine literature. That's really interesting how how well it bound all those other things up. It's also interesting the the liver copper going down the blood copper, and I think that just shows you that liver copper tells you how much is there in the sink, but that takes a while for that storage to disappear before we see the results in blood copper. Once they're low in blood copper, they're really low in liver as well. Yeah. You went on with Michaela to do a second study looking at mineral supplementation to try to deal with that impact of, of copper deficiency that might result from a high sulfate diet or high sulfate water. What kinds of mineral supplementation did Michaela compare? Yeah, so in this study, we were really looking to try to mitigate those effects. And so we wanted to compare conventional strategies that are used in industry to try to deal with high sulfur water or high sulfate water and the impact on on trace minerals. So the first one we did is used inorganic trace minerals, which would be kind of your basal low-level mineral package. And we used it at uh, NRC recommended rates. The second one we tested was to actually replace 100% of our trace minerals. So copper, zinc, manganese, and selenium. We replaced those inorganic sources and used 100% chelated or organic sources in the case of selenium. And then the third approach that we used was to bring in an injectable uh, trace mineral supplement. Were there any differences then between these strategies in terms of mitigating the decline in liver copper? Yeah, the first thing is we were very disappointed in terms of the outcomes, but the results are the results. And and these are important findings. Again, at recommended rates, uh, it didn't matter if we fed inorganic or chelated trace minerals, we still had depletion of liver copper. So at recommended rates, at least with our preliminary findings, it does not look like just replacing inorganic sources with chelated sources is going to prevent that decline. The exciting part was the injectable trace mineral did actually prevent the decline, and it prevented the decline for the 84 days of this study. So, uh, you know, that provides some opportunity for producers to use maybe injectable trace minerals as cows are going out to pasture and at least prevent the decline in, in trace minerals while they're going through their breeding season. We should mention that we don't currently have that particular product licensed in Canada. I believe it's on its way to being licensed, but uh, I've heard that for a little while now. I don't think it's there yet. I know some veterinarians have managed to import a product like that from the U.S. through a emergency drug release application. We can get a, an injectable copper product, which we didn't look at here in this study, but we can get an injectable copper product compounded in some areas. Uh, so there are some options, but hopefully we'll have a licensed commercial product available to us here in Canada that we could use as an injectable mineral in those sort of situations. Yeah, and I think that's that's really important to have multiple ways for producers to uh, try to address these challenges if they're facing them. What's the next step then, Greg, in this research area for you? Yeah, so you've already mentioned the challenge with uh, injectables. And, and again, we're not fully sure how long they're going to last. So I think, you know, understanding how much 
trace mineral supply is required to prevent the decline is, is still a priority. And so we've applied for some new funding through the uh, Ministry of Saskatchewan Agriculture Development Fund. Hopefully we'll be successful, but uh, we won't know those results for a little while yet. Our, our goal in this study is really to try to mitigate those effects. So how high should we be increasing our mineral supply, whether they be inorganic or organic sources of trace minerals? And will those increases actually help us uh, prevent a decline in trace mineral status when we're dealing with isulfate water? The other issue, or there's a couple other issues we want to address. One is the relative contribution of feed and water sulfur sources. We have a sneaky suspicion, although we can't confirm, that feed sulfur might be more harmful than water sulfur. And we think there's probably some other conditions where water sulfate could be more or less harmful. So we want to separate and understand whether those factors are influencing the response of cattle and our ability to mitigate the impacts of that high sulfate. And then we want to extend those findings um, to the sheep industry. So hopefully trying to understand because sheep have a very high sensitivity to copper. They're, they're prone to copper toxicity, but they can also have copper deficiency. And so understanding how sheep respond to high sulfate water is pretty important, particularly as we can use them as a model to understand how high sulfate water might affect development of offspring during pregnancy. And again, in this case, we're using sheep really as a model for cattle. They have a shorter gestation. They're a little easier to handle in our research facilities and they obviously have a lower cost, but we think that at least the broader concepts would apply back to cattle. Well, maybe to finish up, we should just chat about what producers should do if they're worried about being in a high sulfate area. Maybe they have feed with high sulfates or water with high sulfates. What would you recommend at this point in time? Yeah, the first thing is we need to confirm that assumption, right? Uh, Take samples of your water, take samples of your feed, get them analyzed. If you're fortunate to be in Saskatchewan, our ministry still has a free water testing program. If you're outside of the province, you'll, you'll have to deal with that through uh, other local labs. Should also be working with either extension specialists, veterinarians, or nutritionists to evaluate those risk factors. Because I mentioned earlier, high forage versus high grain diets, uh, have different risk and tolerances, or cows have different risk and tolerances for the level of sulfur coming. And we might need to think about other strategies that we put in place to minimize the effect of that high sulfur source, particularly if we can't avoid it. So it's really about knowing where you can find additional support. And, and I would always encourage producers to seek advice from a veterinarian and nutritionist, and if you have in your area, uh, livestock ex extension specialists. We should also mention that those sulfates level in the water especially can change dramatically through the season. You may have to test more than once. We've got some areas around us that have had pretty good rain this year and other areas that are in severe drought and 
you get some hot weather and dry conditions for a period of time and those sulfates can rise pretty high in that surface water at least. Uh, so it's something you may need to test more than once through the season. Yeah, and I don't want to get people thinking just to test in the case of drought. You know, as an example, there's some areas that got a fair bit of rain last night. And you can see in high sulfur areas or high sulfate areas that ring of salt around the water bodies, at least surface water, with a lot of rain, you can solubilize that salt and it brings the sulfur back into the water source. So rain doesn't mean there's no risk. Um, certainly during drought, those sulfates uh, concentrate and they can concentrate very fast. Um, but don't get caught just uh, don't get caught off guard thinking that because it's rained, uh, sulfates will be reduced. Good point. Thanks, Greg. I want to thank you again for doing this today. Lots of great information and really interesting research results. I hope we uh, are fortunate to continue to get some more projects on this and, and some further results down the road to help producers with this issue. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, John, and thanks for all your help with the projects. Without you, we certainly couldn't have done and, and accomplished what we did. Uh, I was just the liver biopsy guy, so <laughs> it was fun. Thanks. Take care. Take care. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast, and thanks as well to my guest, Dr. Greg Penner. Thanks as always to our sponsors, the Alberta Beef Producers and the Beef Cattle Research Council. Please consider subscribing, reviewing wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate the feedback. And if you have suggestions or comments or would like to suggest topics that you'd like to see covered in future episodes, please email me at bchnpodcast at gmail.com. Take care until next time.